Good afternoon and welcome to Voice of the People Radio by and for the 99% for September 4th, 2021, the Labor Day show. And that we just finished listening to Leonard Cohen's Democracy, this song that sums up what we try to do here every week. And you're listening to Jim, the sound man, and Jim is speaking from KFGM 105.5 FM, Missoula Community Radio, live streaming on 1055kfgm.org. That's four numbers and four letters in a row. And now on podcast on anchor.fm forward slash VOP hyphen Montana or searchable on Spotify and other podcast apps under voice of the people radio by and for the 99%. And I continue to be Jim, the sound man, and we have a foursome today. So please, the other three of you 
say hi and introduce yourselves. Hi, my name's Linda Gillison, and I'm actually Zooming in today from Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And I have some experience in um, with unions in that I was a member of the university faculty union at the University of Montana uh, for all of my 25 or 27 years there and an executive board member for quite a few of those years. You probably know that the UFA is now part of the Montana Federation of Public employees. Great, great. And of course, in honor of Labor Day, uh, Sue Kirchmeyer here. I'm an RN, uh, retired just a couple of years. And for my whole, whole career, I, I was re represented in collective bargaining. And um, some of the time was on the collective bargaining committee. Um, so, Mark? Yeah, uh, Mark Anderlich. Um, I've been on the show a few times. Um, <laughs> and uh, um, a former uh, uh, organizer and uh, elected leader of Unite Here, Local 427, and later uh, 20, Local 23, and uh, for many years, the president of the Missoula Area Central Labor Council, AFL-CIO. And Jim, what's your uh, union affiliations? Thank you for bringing it up, because um, I've been a union person my whole life with only a few interruptions. I was in the Retail Clerks International, which is now the UFCW. I was a steel worker in, at Phoenix Steel. Um, so USW, the same mill that Joe Biden worked in. So when he talks oh. about Phoenix Steel, Claymont, I'm bonding with him, your brother. <laughs> and for over, and for a quarter of a century, I was either a um, aerospace machinist at Boeing working on the floor as a mechanic or working for uh, the internet, the SPEEA, a division of IFPTE, which is <laughs> a union that started out organizing uh, drafters and engineers at shipyards and Boeing came on board um, relatively recently. Well, I union of engineers and scientists. I thank goodness you didn't follow that up by saying M O U S E. <laughs> oh, <laughs> because then we would have had to sing. Mickey yeah, yeah. Mickey oh, no, hey, well, <laughs> as we spoke about at our last live show, music and labor have been partnered for as a very, very, very long time and a wonderful history there and a yes, lot of yes. wonderful music to talk about. So uh, we're broadcasting 75% of us from 0% of us from the historic Union Hall in the Missoula Valley of Montana, uh, the ancestral homeland of the Salish and Kootenai people. But yet again, we are recording the show from the comfort of our homes, also in the ancestral homeland of the Salish and Kootenai people. But Linda... The outlier is right. off in among the Northeast tribes in North That's Carolina. Right. The North of uh, the Southeast tribes. And I was going oh, to mention today sorry. the Tuscarora yeah. and the Cherokee, although there are lots of wonderful other groups uh, who lived in this place for a long, long time. Gotcha. And despite uh, all of our deepest wishes, the pandemic is not over yet. 
You need to hang in there still by doing your part by wearing masks when you are inside in public, by frequent washing of your hands and by getting vaccinated. We need to act in solidarity with those who cannot get the vaccination or, or who have compromised health. And we need to act in solidarity with all the healthcare workers who are being worked to their limits and beyond in hospitals overflowing with COVID-19 patients. This show is pre-recorded as our part in halting the pandemic. We hope you enjoy it as we enjoyed learning how to put this together without going into the studio. And we want to give old Mick a shout out. Good work, Mick. Happy Labor Day, Mick. Also a very fine labor man. Yes. Absolutely. So we're back to single words of the week, I see. And the word of the week is union. Yes, well, surprisingly, I, I, please, I Mark. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't want to disappoint you, Jim, by having like labor union. Just call it union, and it's indeed. It's. Uh, Should we sing solidarity now, or? Oh well. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, possibly. <laughs> um, yeah, maybe. I'll go get my tuba, and we'll play. Along. <laughs> right there, we go. Um, so, a union, also known as a labor union or trade union is an organization of workers who have come together to achieve common goals, such as protecting the integrity of their trade, improving safety mm -hmm. standards, attaining better wages, benefits, and working conditions, all through the increased bargaining power wielded by solidarity among workers. Unions also work to promote democracy, improve the general wealth, welfare, and to advance the social and economic justice for all. I Unions go way back into history, don't they, Mark? Does yeah, it go back to the guild movements in many, many centuries ago? Well, even further back than that. Even further than that. Yeah. Um, if fitting that definition of workers getting together to try to improve their, their working situation. Um, it, some say for millennia that unions have been mm -hmm. around. Um, but we're going to have to do that for another show. <laughs> So first, as regular right. listeners, listeners know, we like to use Wikipedia as a reference for our words of the week. Our fearless leader and radio station manager, JVD, has suggested that we included this note about Wikipedia, that each entry is written by the public with citations provided for sources of information. So the accuracy of each entry may vary somewhat. That said, according to our collective wisdom at Wikipedia, uh, trade unions and collective bargaining were outlawed in England from no later than the middle of the 14th century. All right. So unions were already in trouble with the state back then. Oh. Um, when the ordinance of laborers was enacted in the kingdom of England. But the union way of thinking was the one that endured down the centuries, inspiring evolutions and advances in thinking, which eventually gave workers the necessary rights, their necessary rights. As collective bargaining and early workers' unions grew with the onset of the Industrial Revolution, the English government began to clamp down on what it saw as the danger of popular unrest at the times of the Napoleonic Wars. In 1799, the Combination Act was passed, which banned trade unions and collective bargaining by British workers. Under the uh, English common law, that forbade like employers or stores to collude together to set prices. 
Okay. So they looked at labor as a commodity price and that unions couldn't get together to try to determine, you know, try to raise uh, wages. Hmm. How sporting Uh, of them. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) um, And so uh, in 1799, the Combination Act was passed, which banned trade unions and collective bargaining by British workers. Although the unions were subject to often severe repression until 1824, they were already widespread in cities such as London. Workplace militancy had also manifested itself as Luddism, which is basically uh, uh, wrecking the machines that would take away people's jobs, um, and had been prominent in struggles such as the 1820 rising in Scotland in which 60,000 workers went out on a general strike, um, which was soon crushed uh, by the British authorities. Sympathy for the plight of the workers brought repeal of the acts in 1824, although the Combination Act of 1825 (laughs) severely restricted their activity. By the 1810s, the first labor organizations to bring together workers by divergent occupations were formed. Possibly the first such union was the General Union of Trades, also known as the Philanthropic Society, founded in 1818 in Manchester, England. The latter name was to hide the organization's real purpose in a time when trade unions were still illegal, end quote. Uh, So repression of unions is not at all a new thing. Unfortunately, it isn't. Right. Yes. Magna Carta didn't apply to them. (laughs) Yeah, right. Um, But it does give rise to the truth that if unions are so unnecessary or that they don't work, why does the boss work so hard to crush them? (laughs) Oh, yes. Good point. I've seen many Facebook posts with that premise. Yes. Why do they have such wonderful lawyers to keep something from happening that they know is wrong? Yes. And can't work. Absolutely. Well, the simple truth is that owners of capital, corporations and the wealthy of today, don't want to democratically share their riches and power with the very people who create those riches, which is their workforce. And so century after century, the wealthy try to crush workers' organizations. They may win in the short run, but unions still are alive and fighting. They most certainly are. And we have a parallel rich history in the United States of worker organizations. That's right. And again, from Wikipedia, the history of labor disputes in America substantially precedes the revolutionary period. In 1636, for instance, there was a fisherman's strike on an island off the coast of Maine. And in 1677, 12 carmen were fined for going on strike in New York City. However, most instances of labor unrest during the colonial period were temporary and isolated and rarely resulted in the formation of permanent groups of laborers for negotiation purposes. Little legal recourse was available to those injured by the unrest because strikes were not typically considered illegal at that time. The only known case of criminal prosecution of workers in the US colonial era occurred as a result of of a carpenter strike in Savannah, Georgia in 1746. Over the first half of the 19th century, there are 23 known cases of indictment and prosecution for criminal conspiracy taking place in six states. The cases overwhelmingly resulted in convictions. However, in most instances, the plaintiff's desire was to establish favorable precedent 
which means that the employers wanted to have that weapon available whenever the workers started to organize, um, not to impose harsh penalties and the fines were typically modest. With such mixed case, mixed case law, as economist Edwin Witte stated, the doctrine that a combination to raise wages is illegal was allowed to die by common consent. No leading case was required for its overthrow. End quote. Nevertheless, while Commonwealth versus Hunt, which was settled by the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court in 1842, while that was not the first case to hold that labor combinations were legal, it was the first to do so explicitly and in clear terms. Hmm. So unions were not clearly legal in the U.S. until 1842. That's right. And politically was an interesting time. And I can see where it it follows developments other places. Right. Right. And and even then, it wasn't a sure thing in 1842, as we're going to find out in a little bit. Um, because more serious trouble was brewing for working people's organizations in the U.S. Unions suffered increasingly under all kinds of violence and repression at the hands of hired employer thugs, local police, and even the U.S. military. So there we are again. Unions were made illegal. If a federal judge can issue an injunction based on antitrust, it seems unions were back to English common law that forbade collaboration in the setting of wages. Yeah, for sure, um, the legal waters became far more muddy during this time. Court injunctions became a primary tool of employers to shut down their workers from organizing, in addition to their hired thugs. After the, for, after the formation of the American Federation of Labor, the AFL, which is now the part of the AFL-CIO, after that formation in 1886, uh, and the rise of more radical unions, such as the Industrial Workers of the World, the IWW or Wobblies, in 1905, worker organizing and strikes hit a peak in their late 1910s. Union activity in Butte, Montana, for example, and other Montana towns were also at a peak. However, that was not to last. And, and one reason why it didn't last was be eventually, uh, I think it was Woodrow Wilson who sent in the troops to occupy Butte. Mm. Um, right at, right to, at the yes. end of World War I. Yeah. And, and that helped pretty much crush any sort of mm. um, active union activity for the next 10 years in Butte. There, the Gibraltar of unionism um, really was pretty quiet. Mm-hmm. So that was at the end of World War I? It was, yeah, near it was near the end. It was either near the end or right after World War One, right? It, 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 gotcha. I have to look that so, up. So, mm-hmm. so uh, that sounds like keep the workers happy while they need while they're producing copper for bullets and shell casings and, right. and copper wire, copper wire, and, yeah. and other things, and then when. It isn't an existential threat to civilization. Um, go ahead and mess with them again. Right. And turn your backs on them, basically. Right. Mm-hmm. It's the same story that happens. It's told through the centuries. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I even heard the anecdote, and one of the other three of you is going to know if I'm right or wrong, 
that Omar Bradley was stationed in Butte to for to maintain the federal troops to yeah, he, make sure that the supply of copper wasn't interrupted in wartime. And then he went off to Europe to become famous. Yep. That's that's I think that I think Eisenhower it was Bradley or MacArthur, guy. one of the two, right? Um, oh, oh, don't say MacArthur. I have to rewrite my whole history. Of the world. <laughs> <laughs> I still have him stuck as the as our nemesis when he he alone um, would go out and honor the orders to to tear down the bonus army tents in the, in the Capitol. Mm, mm-hmm. yeah, I think that's the, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's right. Hey, you should have faded away after that. Yeah. Right. Uh, might I just say that back to Butte and so on, and then I want to talk a little bit about the Battle of Blair Mountain, uh, if I may, since oh. we're at the centennial um, oh. uh, memorial of it. Uh, first of all, last year, a, a group of folks, I think three of them were in Missoula and one of them was out in Eugene or something, but they're all sort of, based around Missoula, um, set up a, a new podcast. Does everybody know about that called the Death in the West podcast? No. Did it anybody listen ominous, to man, that? Like I think you can find it. I think you can find it online. I bet if you can just if you just go to death in the West org maybe or something like that, you can find it. Their whole season last season was focused on the death of Frank Little in 1917 oh. right the murder mm-hmm. of frank little in 1917 and what butte was like at that time and what organized labor in the west was like in that time it was a wonderful series yeah so i'm still waiting for their series too but they're fine young people and they did a great job so um and I'm then all for I, fine young people. That's yeah, great. I'm all for them too. Yeah. Um, and then I wanted to just mention, if you don't mind, um, Mark, that we are at the centennial, I believe on August 29th or 30th or somewhere around there, began the Battle of Blair Mountain in Logan County, West Virginia in 1921. And it was one of the uh, long and violent interactions between coal miners, members of the UMW, and well, UMW wanted to organize in Logan County. They had Mm -hmm. already organized some counties roundabout there in the coal mining area, and they wanted to organize in Logan County. And uh, of course, the owners of the mines did not want that to happen. So uh, this was a time when about, for I think about five days, about 10,000 miners uh, stood against, and I don't know these numbers and somebody else may know the numbers, but against a whole troop from a private detective company and against the National Guard and against uh, air bombardments, aircraft, um, in order to support themselves and to make the case. And you were just talking about this a minute ago, Jim, about the end of the of the First World War, um, they were following in the footsteps of another uh, major coal mining strike by the UMW in 1919 or 1920, um, because the miners were upset that they had not been paid as much as they thought or uh, 
honored, respected in their jobs during the World War because, of course, all the patriotic right. fervor and they had been told, wait until after the war and then, then we'll pay you, wait until after the war and then we'll pay you. And then, of course, no surprise, after the war, the companies decided they did not want to increase their Right. The Rosemary thing. Woods deleted it. <laughs> yeah, the, the same thing is happening, and we'll talk a little bit later on about Warrior Met in uh, Alabama, just now. <laughs> uh, you're part of the country, Jim. But in any case, it was one of those great heroic standoffs. <laughs> Uh, which right. we often like to think about um, as representing, although it was not immediately um, victorious, they didn't immediately get what they wanted. Um, and I think about 100 miners were killed, maybe 35 oh, or 40 no. people on the other side. Uh, but it was one of those places where what happened has happened so often in the history of our country. And that is the brothers and sisters in the United Mine Workers um, stood their ground and said, working people need to, be, um, need to be respected. I think they were at that time just working for the 40 hour week, the eight day week, mm -hmm. which seemed uh, ridiculous <clears throat> to uh, the capitalists who were their bosses. So um, I just like to say thank you to the people of Blair Mountain. If you uh, want to read, there are lots of really good books about it. Um, and there's also a wonderful movie which was made in 1987 called Matewan. Oh, yes. Uh, about one yeah. of the little towns over in, this is all in Southwestern West Virginia. Now the history of unions uh, in the United States in the 1920s and early 1930s, to me, after putting this show together, those the script sounds <clears throat> what's what was happening to workers and unions then in that time sounds very similar similar to in certain ways to what we are experiencing today <clears throat> from Wikipedia. So if you kind of follow along and maybe draw the parallels. Mm -hmm. um, you, the listeners. Um, so the 1920s marked a period of sharp decline for the labor movement. Union membership and activities fell sharply in the face of economic prosperity, a lack of leadership within the movement, and anti-union sentiments and, and more, I would say, <laughs> um, yeah. from both employers and the government. The unions were much less able to organize strikes. In 1919, for example, more than 4 million workers, or 21% of the labor force, 21% of the labor force participated in about 3,600 strikes in 1919. Ten years later, in contrast, uh, 1929 witnessed about two, a little more than a quarter million workers, or 1.2% of the labor force, stage only 900 strikes. Um, that sounds familiar to us today. Um, after a short recession in 1920, the 1920s were a generally prosperous decade outside of farming and coal mining. Mm. The economic prosperity of the decade led to stable prices, eliminating one major incentive to join unions. Unemployment fell from 11, over 11% 11 in 1921 to just over 2% in 1923 and remained in the range of 2 to 5% until 1930. The 1920s also saw a lack of strong leadership within the labor movement. The AFL was down to less than 3 million members in 1925, a million less than hitting their peak in 1920. 
Employers across the nation led a successful campaign against unions known as the American Plan, which sought to depict unions as alien to the nation's individualistic spirit. A little shades of neoliberalism there. Oh right? gosh, yes. Um, in addition, some employers like the National Association of Manufacturers, who, mm. still, who are still one of the main opponents. <laughs> yes, um, still villainous. Still villainous. <laughs> Uh, used red scare tactics to discredit unionism by linking them to subversive activities. U.S. courts were less hospitable to union activities during the 1920s than in the past. Also in this decade, corporations used twice as many court injunctions against strikes than any comparable period. Although the labor movement fell in prominence during the 1920s, the Great Depression would ultimately bring it back to life. Yeah, many, many similarities. Um, another element that's kind of fun to throw in the mix is the KKK was hugely successful then. So it's almost the same culture wars that you see today. That's right. uh, there's that, there's that um, nationalistic, individualistic, prideful Southeastern U.S. Um, vibe, <laughs> you know, uh, a challenging, you know, alien ideas from far off lands uh, you know bolshevism communism people with bad beers in charge and it's here it is today yep so and there's more similarities again from wikipedia this between uh, the, this time period and, and the present so the stock market crashed in october 1929 everybody knows <coughs> mm-hmm and ushered in the Great Depression. By the winter of 1932-33, which was three years later, right? some people don't remember that. It seems like 1929, and then like the next day of the Great Depression. Right. That's the <laughs> lesson we are taught, that this huge outlier that had nothing to do with anything else that happened was like a thunderbolt from the sky, and everybody woke up the day after and the economy was a mess well um so by the winter of 1932-33 the economy was so perilous that the unemployment rate hit 25 percent and i'm going to say unemployment in the united states did not hit that high until last year <clears throat> where it exceeded right. it was it was 32 percent something like that un unemployment uh, because of the pandemic, right? So mm -hmm. there's there's a similarity there, different causes, but right. Um, <clears throat> unions lost members during this time because laborers could not afford to pay their dues. And furthermore, numerous strikes against wage cuts left the unions impoverished. Uh, one might have expected a reincarnation of organizations seeking to overthrow the capitalist system that was now performing so poorly. Yes. And some workers did indeed turn to such radical movements as the Communist Party. But in general, the nation seemed to have been shocked into inaction. Though unions were not acting yet, cities across the nation witnessed local and spontaneous marches by frustrated relief applicants. Remember, there was no unemployment insurance, right, right. no Social Security, no food stamps, no, there, there was nothing really. Um, 
And so um, uh, these spontaneous marches by frustrated relief applicants uh, who asked for charity, basically. In March 1930, hundreds of thousands of unemployed workers marched through New York City, Detroit, Washington, San Francisco, and other cities in a mass protest organized by the Communist Party's unemployment, unemployed councils. In 1931, uh, a little bit after that, more than... 400 relief protests erupted in Chicago, and that number grew to 550 in 1932. So clearly there was a lot of agitation and organizing and protest against uh, the depression and the, and the economic difficulties is causing people. Yeah, absolutely. So with these unemployment councils, the leadership behind these organizations often came from radical groups like communists and socialist parties, who wanted to organize unfocused neighborhood militancy into organized popular defense organizations, as they put it. Organized labor became more active in 1932 with the passage of the Norris LaGuardia Act. On March 23, 1932, Republican President Herbert Hoover signed the Norris LaGuardia Act, making the first of many pro-union bills that Washington would pass in the 1930s. Also known as the Anti-Injunction Bill, it offered procedural and substantive protections against the easy issuance of court injunctions to corporations against unions during labor disputes, which had uh, limited union behavior severely in the 1920s. Although the act only applied to federal courts, numerous states would pass similar acts in the future. Additionally, the act outlawed yellow dog contracts, so-called yellow dog contracts, which were documents some employers forced their employees to sign to ensure that they would not join a union. Employees who refused to sign were terminated from their jobs. Yes. I think something I, I was really taken with was the work of the um, unemployment um, councils. Unemployment councils. At least I was one, one thing I'd seen in the Northwest, at least, and I'm sure I bet it was true nationwide then is the mutual aid work that was being done that I think didn't it become the forerunners of what um, FDR and the New Deal would be putting in place? They, they put a lot of political pressure on FDR, right? And, and created and helped create kind of the landslide victories that he's, you know, started to have. I don't think that the unemployed councils lasted much longer. I think a lot of people, as, as this article kind of indicates too, that a lot of people that participated in that <clears throat> started getting involved with unions and organizing that way. So, but yeah, they were huge. There, there was millions of people um, involved in the unemployment councils. Um, yeah. And I'm really interested in the kind of um, inroads, at least uh, progress people, when there's mutual aid included with the organizations. And in, in, with, with organizing. Right. And they were mutual aid organizations, absolutely, um, which we've seen a lot, you know, in, in the last year in Missoula and elsewhere, uh, people kind of coming together and, and taking care of each other, you know, given I think the, that can be really powerful. <clears throat> it can um, actually do something besides just being nonprofit organizations trying to do it. <laughs> right. Um, so um, yes, I want to slow you down. Oh, no, that's, that's okay. Um, the, um, uh, you know, that was 
not the end of the lifting of government repression in the U.S. Mm -hmm. with the Norris LaGuardia Act. Um, it was, you know, this is again from Wikipedia, the passage of the Norris LaGuardia Act signified a victory for the American Federation of Labor, which had been lobbying Congress to pass it for slightly more than five years. Hmm. It also marked a large change in public policy. Up until the passage of this act, the collective bargaining rights of workers were severely hampered by judicial control through the use of uh, injunctions. President Franklin D. Roosevelt took office on March 4th, 1933, and immediately began implementing programs to alleviate the economic crisis um, using uh, the, the flexibility allowed by fiat money. In June, he passed the National Industrial Recovery Act, or NIRA, which gave workers the right to organize into unions. Though it contained other provisions like minimum wage and maximum hours, its most significant passage was, quote, employees shall have the right to organize and bargain collectively through representatives of their own choosing and shall be free from the interference, restraint, or coercion of employers, end quote. And uh, this portion, which was known as Section 7A, uh, is still more or less included in the Wagner Act, which we'll get to in a second, mm -hmm. um, was symbolic to workers in the United States because it stripped employers of their rights to either coerce them or refuse to bargain with them. While no power of enforcement was written into the law, it, quote, recognized the rights of the industrial working class in the United States, end quote. <clears throat> Although the National Industrial Recovery Act was ultimately deemed unconstitutional by the Supreme Court in 1935 and replaced by the Wagner Act two months after that, it fueled workers to join unions and strengthen those organizations. In, in response to both Norris LaGuardia and the NIRA, workers who were previously unorganized in a number of industries, such as rubber workers, oil and gas workers, and service workers, began to look for organizations that would allow them to band together. The NIRA strengthened workers' resolve to unionize, and instead of participating in unemployment or hunger marches, they started to participate in strikes for union recognition in various industries. In 1933, the number of work stoppages jumped to 1,695, double its figure from 1932. In 1934, 1,865 strikes occurred involving more than 1.4 million workers. Ah, so this is when the bride finally gets carried over the threshold <laughs> and rights of workers to organize are and have been made legal. Yeah, at, at long last, right? Um, through, through the National Labor Relations Act, for sure, and mm -hmm. which was what it's known now, but it was known as the Wagner Act um, oh. after NIRA was um, found unconstitutional. Um, and the Supreme Court upheld the National Labor Relations Act or the Wagner Act as, as part of uh, First Amendment rights, right? The, the, the freedom to associate is fundamental to the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, and therefore the freedom to form unions to do this, uh, to look after their interests, to organize and, and act in their own interests, uh, is constitutional. So, um, but um, the legal right and the terrible necessity to do so, brought on by the Great Depression, brought growing pains to the newly revived labor movement. 
And the divisions mostly center around how to organize. Um, this is uh, again from Wikipedia. The AFL was growing rapidly from 2.1 million members in 1933 to 3.4 million in 1936, but it was experiencing severe internal stresses regarding how to organize new members. Traditionally, the AFL organized unions by craft rather than industry, where electricians or stationary engineers would form their own skill-oriented unions. Rather than join a large automobile making union, which include many trades and um, mm -hmm. skills. Most AFL leaders, including President William Green, were reluctant to shift from the organization's longstanding craft unionism and started to clash with other leaders within the organization, such as John L. Lewis. Uh, the issue of the United Mine Workers. The issue came up at the annual AFL convention in San Francisco in 1934 and 1935, but the majority voted against a shift to industrial unionism both years. After the defeat at the 1935 convention, nine leaders from the industrial faction led by John L. Lewis met and organized the Committee for Industrial Organization within the AFL to quote, encourage and promote organization of workers in the mass production industries, end quote, for educational and advisory functions. The CIO, which later changed its name to the Congress of Industrial Organizations, formed unions with the hope of bringing them into the AFL, but the AFL refused to extend full membership privileges to CIO unions. In 1938, the AFL expelled the CIO and its million members, and they formed a rival federation. The, food, the two federations fought it out for membership. While both supported Roosevelt and the New Deal, the CIO was further to the left while the AFL had close ties to the big city political machines. Wow, thank you, Mark. There's a lot of history there that I never completely yeah. understood. You're here. Thanks a lot for spelling it out. And there's more, but we're just, we're, we're skating on by kind of on the highlights here. Um, <laughs> Well, um, in this episode of Voice of the People, we will discuss where workers and unions are at today and where we need to go. Um, I bring this history of U.S. unions up to suggest that some of the answers we are looking for today of where to go may be found in the experience of workers from the 1920s and 30s. For example, the method of organizing in the 1930s by the CIO holds great promise for workers today. The foremost proponent of the CIO organizing method is Jane McAlevey, a former union organizer herself. We have brought up McAlevey and the CIO organizing method several times in the past shows. It certainly is a familiar name. Yeah, she's, and really she's a sentient person for sure. Mm -hmm. For yeah. sure. And she's organizing internationally. It's really exciting what she's yeah. doing. Yeah. Yeah, she's yeah. trained. She's yeah. Uh, uh, Sue, Sue, and I were on. I helped kind of organize a Montana uh, branch of what was it? Almost ten thousand people online on a Zoom call. Um, well, six classes. Yeah. Yeah, split into two morning and evening, and then wow. for six weeks, uh, McAlevey and others uh, went through some of the basics of the CIO style of organizing. And uh, it was it was it was inspiring to be with so many people. Um, and uh, it was also uh, um, uh, 
lots of really good, very practical information about organizing. Yeah, and sharing what's going on in Albania is like way ahead of Missoula, I think. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they is, were, is, is that, is, hmm? what'd you say? Is that, is, is, um, is that a is that a joke, Sue, or is it true that they no. that in Tirana they're ahead of uh, Zoo City? It it was huge. I mean, the way they're the people they're organizing. Um, I don't know uh, laundry workers and who know, it was really wow. Yeah, I mean, they're, you know, they, uh, where are your natural reader leaders? What what are your steps in protecting people to sign on for their first step? You know, and it's just really cool. Yeah, I can't imagine the inheritors of Envar Hoxha's <laughs> Envar Hoxha's country. Being what were going to say, yeah, Linda? No, please, Linda. Oh, well, I was just going to say that this is really sort of um, we've come full circle because one of the things mm -hmm. that I've learned about that history back in the early twentieth century. Uh, of labor unions in America is that a lot of the ideas did come from immigrants, hmm. right? They, they came from a country where these ideas of social cohesion from countries where these ideas of social cohesions had been talked about for a long, long time. Right, I'm and, glad you uh, brought that one up. One of the things that I learned, when was the Triangle Shirtwaist fire? 1913, I think. 13, I think. I read about that recently, that an incredible mm -hmm. number, not only of the workers in that uh, plant, but also of the organizers were immigrants and in yes. fact, immigrant women. It's no surprise that it was the, that it was the uh, shirtwaist uh, factory, but that people like Sacco and Vanzetti and people like that who came over and talked about workers versus um, owners and capital and that kind of thing had grown up in a Europe where that was being talked about. So it's not a surprise that they really have strong organizational things going on there. Yep. That's right. So we should, um, uh, for the remainder of our show, we will listen to three interviews of people very active in unions and the labor movement and hear their thoughts on where workers and their organizations need to go today. And we'll, and we'll provide some supporting information and maybe some comments too as we go along. So stick, uh, stick with us here for this ride. Um, and the first uh, person we have up is Derek Hitt, and uh, let's let's listen to uh, let's listen to Derek. All right, we're very happy to have with us once again to voice the people radio by and for the ninety nine percent. Derek Hitt, who is the president of the Missoula Area Central Labor Council AFL CIO, and also a union rep with Carpenters 82. Did I get that right? Um, <laughs> um, <clears throat> so, well, welcome to Voice of People, Derek. Thank you, Mark. Uh, glad to be here again. Uh, excited to talk to you about the upcoming Labor Day. Yeah, yeah. So, um, well, you know, we're going to be asking this question of, of all our guests. And you know, uh, maybe we start off with what's, I mean, in, uh, from your perspective, wh what is the state of, uh, the, you know, workers right now in Missoula, Missoula County, Montana, however you want to, however you want to handle that? What, what, what do you see? What's, what, what's good? What's not good? Well, 
I always like to look at everything as an opportunity. Currently, right now, after going through the year of 2020, there's an opportunity for people to understand that their voice can be heard, that workers have power. I mean, we're seeing it right now in the quote-unquote labor shortage, which is not really a labor shortage, but people understanding their worth and understanding that they can do better in this world and move up, whether it's uh, a different field or organizing the members in their workplace to get better wages, get better pay, better conditions. I mean, we're seeing it across the nation. There's been a spark ignited and it's exciting to see how it's working its way through Missoula right now. I'm seeing inklings of just little pushbacks here and there of where people understand that, you know, we stick together, organize, we can make something better for each other. Yeah, that's, yeah, absolutely. Um, just just to uh, uh, double back a little bit, um, the the so-called workforce shortage, what, I mean, what, be a little more specific about what you mean by that. Well, you know, a lot of uh, the bigger talking heads like to call it a workforce shortage, but I quite honestly see it as there was this, the whole 2020 is a lot of people were put in lockdown. A lot of people that weren't deemed essential or were deemed essential got put in different vicarious positions where they learned, do they really want to do this job? Or is this a job worth fighting for to make it better? And that's what's happening. I mean, a lot of people are shifting career choices or decide that, you know, they don't want to work seven days a week for minimum wage, or they don't want to work three jobs just to make ends meet. They're done with it. They want to do better. And some of them were able to get more training or whatever, take advantage of that lockdown and come out better ahead. Some are just, you know, let's get this organized. And I'm seeing a lot of that happen around the area. I mean, demand for better paying wages are through the roof, Uh, organized and unorganized. I mean, quite honestly, I think some of the unorganized are starting to organize and it's Mm -hmm. an opportunity for us to help educate them in the right way of doing it. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I can confirm that I, I had a conversation yesterday with someone who works in a call center um, and is extremely frustrated with the low wages. Um, and then they also, you know, they have, you know, staff that are there more or less, but they hire a lot of people on a temporary basis, right? During, you know, during busy peaks and then they let them go and that sort of thing. Um, and, you know, those two sets of workers have kind of like almost different um, different set of problems, right? It, so it makes it really difficult to organize uh, that, you know, and it, it sort of, you know, I'm gonna kind of jump to, you know, right to maybe where the labor movement, I just asked this question because it's a, I, it's a genuine question for me. How um, does the, traditionally unions are uh, organized workers who are full-time, who are steady, I mean, most of them, 
um, in, a work, in a workplace that's in one place and um, in certain, you know, uh, certainly in traditional industri industries, right? It, uh, um, so, um, and construction is always kind of a, <laughs> a, a little different view, uh, a little different sort of because you don't work for the same employer on a lot of jobs, right? You, you go from employer yeah. to employer. So it's, so the unions and construction is, is they're organized and constructed differently, I guess, to accommodate mm -hmm. that. Um, I'm, I'm wondering that there are so many of these, um, you know, uh, temporary employees, the precariat is a fancy word of saying it, right? That of, of low wage, temporary jobs that in fact, you know, at this call center, there's people all over the country. They're not even in one place. They're working from home, making these calls. And I, you know, and, and traditional unions have a, have a difficult time with that maybe. Um, and, and I know my, my, my union, Unite Here, gave up organizing restaurants, right, a long time ago, because even though it's restaurants is in the name, um, it, because of the, the, the wholesale change in the restaurant industry and where it became, uh, you know, 25 people here and 25 people there, and to try to, try to build that, that mass, I mean, do we need to be rethinking about the purpose of unions or the structure of unions to, to meet that sort of demand? Well, I've always looked at unions. Well, look at the tr building trades, for example. We're not all, we're all in a part of the brotherhood of carpenters. I might be working on this job site over here with 10 guys, and then I might be working with 20 other guys differently over here on this other job site. Or I might get with a company that we travel around. It's that aspect of the building trade side needs to fall through and bleed through to the other side where we can understand that a small group is still a small group. They still need to be represented. They still have the ability to organize and make their job better, better safety conditions, better wages, better benefits. It, there is a way, I think, of us you know, teach, taking a little bit from you guys and taking a little bit from us. We got to be together on this. I mean, that's one thing that the other side loves to divide us on. Yeah. It's like, oh, we'll grab one of these guys, one, one union over here, we'll give them a sweetheart deal and then run everybody else ragged on the other side. Yeah. But if we can have a better uh, open communication with each other and teach little tricks of the trade, because I mean, over on our side, we have top down too. I mean, your guys' side is traditionally bottom up. Right. You start with the workers. We show up with either the front door or the bot or top up approach where we go to the end user and like, hey, this is what we can offer you guys. We can offer you a skilled workforce. Right. And you guys are the ones that get with the workers and move it up. So yeah. there's yeah ways of teaching each other different strengths. I mean, I know one uh, organizing attempt we had, I literally had a strike team of just five guys that we went to job site to job site, showing them what we could do and just got them on and working the company that way. I mean, there's all kinds of different avenues yeah. and 
it's just exciting to see that we are communicating better now because of technology and lack of better terms, what happened last year. I mean, we need to communicate better with each other and put aside petty differences where they are and look at the bigger picture because yeah. we have a golden opportunity right now to organize. We, we've never had this kind of organizing opportunity. Uh, I actually had the opportunity to sit in with uh, our new labor secretary, uh, Mr. Walsh, and he said, this is your golden opportunity. Don't waste it. Mm-hmm. And I feel like as long as we can get the ball moving, we got a golden opportunity to change for the working class here in Missoula and in Montana help United States for the better. Yeah. Yeah. I, <clears throat> I think you're right. And in your in reference, referencing uh, U.S. Secretary of Labor, Marty Walsh, which um, that's, uh, you know, that co- who was, uh, he was, I think, a uh, union organizer in, mm-hmm. in the building trades, right? I think he's a building. Yeah. yeah. He's a labor and also was a mayor of Boston. The mayor of Boston, right. Well, as incidentally, he's mayor of Boston. But yeah, <laughs> just a little um, thing. Just a little thing. Um, so, uh, yeah, you, you, you're, you're, you're saying a lot. I, I think that um, because people have really seen, are really like disgusted about how uh, you know, and I, about essential workers, how like they're not essential anymore, right? They're just, they're back to the same old, you know, like your disposable kind of thing. And as COVID, you know, rears its ugly head again, um, you know, who knows where we're going to go with that. But um, I think you're right that a lot of people are just have, have said, you know, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to risk my life to, you know, run, run a cash register, you know, um, and, uh, or, or to serve people, you know, um, a meal. Um, and it, you know, there's a reordering. I, I think though, that the opportunity, you know, it presents itself and that having, you know, the reason why I'm asking these questions of people is to try to not only communicate, but to also honestly try to figure out, well, what, what exactly would that look like, right? So, and you, you were talking about your side, our side. So, um, and your side being, um, uh, being the bottom up most um, un- under, under US labor law, most organizing has to be done from from the workers up right and and <laughs> that they make the they make a decision they have a vote or they sign <laughs> authorization cards and if there's a majority oh, yeah. of them in the workplace you know then either you know there's various ways of doing that um <laughs> that uh th- they should be having a union but on the building trade side as you said is that um, and I think the building trades are the only exception to that rule that where you can go because of the, the, um, the, the change in employers, you can go, you can go to, like you said, the end user, I think you said, and say, mm-hmm. well, this is what we can offer you. We could offer you quality workers who are going to show up on time. 
and they're going <clears> to <throat> they've got the skills, you know, that we can we can present, you know, this package to you so that, you know, and in the meantime, right, but you, you've got to you got to pay the workers this kind of wage, you have to offer this kind of benefits, you have to do this and that. And th that's a fair way of saying it, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. We look at it like we're giving you the opportunity to have a skilled workforce to do the job right the first time instead right. of you know, going fast and nasty and then coming back and changing everything again, changing everything again, which in end is going to cost you more. Yeah. You, you'd think the University of Montana would have learned this by now. Anyway, I couldn't help but make that comment um, <laughs> because they're notorious. Shots fired. Yeah, right. They, they're notorious <laughs> for having the, the low bid, which is non-union, and then having union workers go back and fix things. That's been for decades. Um, oh, absolutely. Anyway, um, so our state government ought to, you know, get, uh, you know, a little better on the, and I'm thinking though that it's, you know, so here we have a lot of, I mean, so the difference though would be there's a lot of uh, low wage workers, all right? It's almost like the, you know, the workers who worked in factories back in the day, right? Where yeah. you, you didn't need a skill really, you didn't really need an education, you just you went to the mines, you went to the factories, right? And, um, and uh, but now the factories are kind of spread out, like like the, the employers are all over the place, right? I mean, mm -hmm. these call center workers, you could be anywhere and be a call center worker and it makes it tough to organize because how do you get a hold of those people, right? You can't stand outside of the plant gates or the mine mouth and you know, leaflet people or, or talk to them about the union, you've got to find other, I mean, thank goodness we got these other ways of communicating, right? Um, oh, absolutely. And so, um, so that's an interesting idea that if, you know, if there was a, um, you know, one form might be, and, and this has been, tr I think, tried in some places where you try to, you, you know, uh, build, an association of workers, kind of a non-traditional union where it, it's almost like your hiring hall in a sense, right? Or your the, yeah. the hiring list of people, those are the members. And then somehow there's somehow they're there. And I'm not sure how exactly, but there, there may be, uh, there's always ways of exercising leverage on an employer if workers stick together, right? And so even if the workers don't, I mean, this is the challenge. Maybe how do you how do you build solidarity when workers may not may not know them, might not ever see them, might not know their name? You know, that's a that's a tough thing. I mean, how do you build that culture of solidarity? Do you think? Well, you got to first find common ground with everybody because that is probably the worst thing that's happened in the last few years is that our common ground has gotten eroded just by whether it's the mainstream telling us something or us watching a quick Facebook post that angers us. It's just, we've lost the ability to find common ground. And, you know, as an organizer, you've got to find that one spot that everybody can unite around. And normally it's low wages. Like these guys aren't getting paid what they should. Be. So let's get everybody together, find a way to get each other together. I don't want to say 
too much out loud since this is posted <laughs> on the internet. But, you know, there's certain ways that we can do that. You know, there's certain ways they're not tracked, you know, like a what's that and, you know, a something other book, you know, there's places that you can put that stuff. Yeah, trying to be incognito here if you can't <laughs> count. <laughs> well, you, but you, there are ways that we can get together and just talk to each other. I mean, I've even seen ways where they're just someone's posting a meme, and that is actually a sign for something. There's, we can go back to the old school ways of you know, ah, the miners did signs back in the day when they were trying to organize. Like, hey, this this symbol here on this column means we're having a meeting tonight. You all see that? You all come down to the meeting. Mm-hmm. You know, there was ways to get around the boss. Right. So they didn't have to come around you. But, you know, we have to get back to that where we can get symbols going, where we can get people to organize, where they can see where to get the common ground again. I mean, it's it's there. We just have to figure out how to get there. Yeah. I think that's I think that's really well said and um, <clears throat> and speaks to the fact that um, you know in Montana 12 percent of all the workforce is organized in a union nationally it's less than that um, and so most workers you know the uh, you know most of the jobs in the Missoula Valley for instance <clears throat> are service jobs. Um, in only three sectors, right? It's it's uh, low wage healthcare, retail, or hospitality. That's that's more than the majority of workers right there. Um, one of the one of the things um, you know that might be tried, I think, is you know calling calling for uh, you know maybe some uh, kind of like get-togethers, right? And of people who work in very diverse fields, but but aimed at people who in, in those unorganized big sectors of our economy. <clears throat> and it would be, I think it would be great to have, you know, some organized labor a- along with that, right? In order to, uh, you know, have a dialogue anyway. And, and because I think a lot of folks in unions m- might not, you know, completely appreciate what the you know low wage precariat workers might go through and i also think that it shows you know those workers that hey look there's not that difference between us right that that there should be um that well aren't you lucky you have a you're privileged and have a union right i mean um that's uh which every worker should have i i never get a union member that doesn't believe that but but it, in fact, there is kind of a, that division is played up sometimes, right? Especially by employers. Oh, absolutely. They, you know, the biggest toxic thing you can hear from our employers, we are a family here. <laughs> Run for the hills. No, you're right. I mean, we are blessed and privileged to be a part of unions. But there are people out there that don't know anything about organizing or what it takes to get everybody together I mean, you just go to some of these fast food restaurants, man. You can just see they're just prime for it because they're irritated. They're getting yelled at by customers. They're getting, they're having to deal with that. You know, their kid might be sick and they don't know how they're going to pay for the health insurance for it. I mean, this is stuff that all of us are dealing with, but there's a way we can help each other. And 
it's more demystifying unions that this is not just a good old boys club. This started from the ground up. I mean, we just had the hundred year anniversary of the battle of uh, Blair mountain mm-hmm. just come up and few people actually know where redneck comes from. Right. It was the redneck army there because yeah. blacks, whites, Irish, Italians, Polish, we all joined together to fight the boss that brought in the national guard, brought in the Pinkertons. Hell, they even brought in the air force to bomb them because they wanted good wages. They didn't want to be worried about every time they shoveled in a ton that the boss would say, Oh no, that's a light ton. No, they wanted to unify. And that's where I think we need to get back to. We need to have ability to teach our labor history again, because a lot of times it gets brushed upon us. I mean, like you said, you sent me the payday uh, report. I mean, how many of those sanctioned strikes right now are being heard about? Very little. I Very think little. Nabisco, uh, Priole, which is done, thank God, more power to them. Yep. And yeah. the Amazon stuff, um, which quite honestly, that is going to be a big lift right now. Is That's the next big push for organized labor because we both know Bezos is not friendly towards workers. <laughs> He's actually stated that a factory worker is useless after three years. And he makes sure that their wages get garnished after three years. Their benefits get garnished after three years. He wants you to quit because he doesn't believe you are worth anything after three years. That alone should irritate everybody in finding ways to organize. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And um, you mentioned about labor history too. And um, so, sometimes labor history can be sort of... Uh, uh, you know, used as like, oh, well, the, 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 good, old, the, the good days for unions are in the past, right? Um, in the, but, you know, what, what they also show, and, and it, it, I, I find this, you know, always fascinating when, like, political leaders will say, well, we need more good paying jobs, like, you know, like in manufacturing. <laughs> and, you know, and, and totally without like with no irony whatsoever. And then they'll say, well, no, we're not for unions. It's like, well, you know, how did manufacturing jobs become the good jobs, you know, that were sent overseas? It was because of the labor movement made them good jobs. They were terrible jobs when when factories first opened. They were horrible. They were they were uh, hell holes and uh, for yeah. workers. And it was workers organizing, right? And, and, and I know that you're, uh, uh, you know, reading on Jane McAlevey's re, restating the CIO method of organizing, you know, and a lot of that, uh, and a lot of that method was used to um, organize the factories to make manufacturing jobs good jobs. I mean, construction jobs weren't were terrible jobs at one point right that they were oh absolutely workers were exploited and and um paid poorly and very dangerous i mean they're still dangerous but lots more dangerous um and then it 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 took the you know the labor movement over a period of time of organizing to make them to make them you know decent um, middle class type jobs um that's 
you know, that's what labor history should be teaching us now. How do we apply this to this like new but really old situation? Yeah, I mean, the funny thing is history is repeating itself right now. We are in a prime time similar to the teens and 20s of the last century. That was the time when we got after these jobs. There were many factory jobs where we did smart tactics. We did sit-ins, we did pamphlets, we did walkouts. We did everything that was available to us at the time. They were not gonna give us our time in the sun, not the owners. I mean, there was a lot of horrible people that used to run very profitable companies back then. They used to have the company town where, but I gave you this beautiful town that you guys are in. I hand you a paycheck and you hand me half of it back. <laughs> but then you got to use the rest of it at my store. Right. I mean, that I'm, I'm horrid at the idea that that might come back because it just feels like with this COVID, like companies coming out and buying places for their people to live. And that throws up my flag like, oh, okay, we're going back company town stuff here. Yeah. But at the same time, we know how to stop that. And that is with organized labor. We need to organize again and we need to push. Yes, it doesn't happen magically overnight as you both, as we both know. Mm-hmm. It takes a lot of seeding that field before one spark happens. And once it does, it just becomes a wildfire. Yeah. And it just finding that right spark, talking to people, finding that common ground where we can will be the best thing that will happen. Well, um, we've come to the end of our time. It's, I can't believe it, actually. <laughs> it's been fast. Um, so thank you very much, Derek. Uh, I really appreciate your thoughts on this. And, you know, we're, um, you know, keep working together. I mean, we're working on a project or two right now, but, um, but uh, look forward to doing that. And th- thank you very much. And uh, um, happy Labor Day and uh, um, all power to the workers. Huh? <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Thank you again for being on here. It's an honor. I love talking about labor issues with you and it was a great time and happy Labor Day and more power to you. And hopefully we can start the spark that will organize this valley. All right. I love that. All right. Thanks. You're listening to Voice of the People radio by and for the 99%. And you are listening to it in the Missoula Valley on KFGM 105.5 FM, Missoula Community Radio. Or you are hearing it streaming on Saturdays from noon to 2 on 1055kfgm.org. And uh, you may be listening to it on podcast, now available on anchor.fm and on Spotify and other uh, podcast apps that you might have. Um, And you can search for it under Voice of the People Radio by and for the 99%. And that was Derek Hitt. We're back to our our four amigos. Um, (laughs) And um, any any thoughts uh, on what Derek had to say? And I know, Linda, you have have something that you want to talk about a little bit. Oh, oh, I was just... 
Yeah. Yeah. But well, a, a, a couple of things before um, uh, just came to my mind when when Derek was speaking, and I appreciated listening to him in that connected way because we have had a couple of conversations, but not that um, long or connected. Um, First of all, is the matter of precarious workers, and you, you were both talking about that, um, and that um, this, this is one of those places where, um, we, well, I'll just say that when I was at the University of Montana, we in the University of Faculty Association included in our number a certain number of um, adjunct faculty. That is, they're not moving up in the tenure track, they're so on and so forth. They're relatively um, relatively temporary, uh, but if they taught a certain amount, they would be part of the union. And even in that union, we had conflicts between the uh, adjunct faculty and the regular faculty members of the union, for instance, over merit pay. Should the adjunct faculty be included in the same application for merit pay as the regular faculty, even though there was only a limited amount of, of merit pay to go around every year? So that's, that's the kind of thing that really it's hard in a union to get people to remember that we're all in this together, right? So I appreciated what both of you were saying about that. Um, and then if anybody else wants to say anything, and I wanna get back to my, what the media hears about it. I, I was just gonna say that even in a, a, a union that seems to be you know, all one, like say when in the hospital RN union period, um, still there's conflict between okay, young people coming in versus the highest step. You got your ER benefits, you got your people working graveyard versus whatever. And there's a million ways to divide. And, and so that building that, um, that whole, I don't know, like, that whole culture is, um, it's hard. at least in this society too. I mean, who, who talks about solidarity when you're growing up? It's like it's us against the boss, you know, it's not gonna happen. Um, I mean, we're lucky to have public schools, let alone public schools that talk about collective bargaining. Yeah. And that's to the point that Derek made too, is that <clears throat> the loss of that solidarity, right? The idea of solidarity, the practice of solidarity um, it can be rebuilt. I totally believe that. And, and that is what an organizer, that is like one of the principal things that an organizer can do is to uh, one by one build that, those connections between people um, so that, you know, eventually you can get a unified and strong uh, organization. Yeah, I was very impressed by Derek and uh, it's good to see that the carpenters are in such good hands. I, um, I like David knew a lot and he try and he knew a lot about labor. Yes. <laughs> and, and, um, Derek is filling his tool belt very well. That's so, yeah. Good I, news. Good news. Good things to look forward to in the future. Yeah. So Linda, you have, you have some, uh, recent news to report. I have, and this also came to my mind because of something that I believe Derek said about what you hear about or don't hear about in 
labor <clears throat> in the labor world. Um, and this actually just came to my attention about a week and a half ago, I guess. I subscribe to In These Times and uh, get emails from them. And Nolan uh, Hamilton Nolan, who is their labor uh, writer, uh, put an email, um, <clears throat> sent an email in which he talked about the five month long strike, which is being carried out by United Mine Workers against Warrior Met coal mine in um, <clears throat> Brookwood, Alabama. Oh. And um, and he, in fact, his article is called Independent Journalists Who Have Been Covering this because national media at that time had been saying nothing about it. In contrast with the Bessemer uh, vote last earlier this year, which of course really fascinated the national media because they're fascinated by that kind of drama and the huge guy, you know, Bezos. Amazon and Bezos, yes. Yeah, exactly. Bessemer was the Amazon strike, right. And so, uh, but we haven't heard much about this. And uh, so I kind of looked around for where I might hear about it. And this was a a strike which has been going on since April the 1st. So they're in their fifth month of striking now. There are about mm. 1,100 strikers, I believe, in a small uh, small city. Um, they're striking uh, over unfair labor practices. And the specific is that back in 2016, they negotiate, apparently there was a whole spate of coal mining bankruptcies happening back then. And at every time, no surprise, the, the guys who were going bankrupt uh, did okay, and the workers always got the bad end of the deal. So at that time, now actually the United Mine Workers negotiated a contract for these workers at, uh, at Warrior Met, and they agreed to take $6 per hour less than they had been getting. And I think changed their health benefits from 100% coverage to 80% coverage. All of those usual kinds of things that you hear happening now. Um, only recently, over only back in the early part of 2021, I think it was, um, the union negotiated for them another contract which did not give them anything like, uh, they, they agreed to this awful contract in 2016 because it's the only way we can keep the company going and you know the town will fall apart and you won't have your jobs and so on and so forth. And, but don't worry, we'll take care of you later. Uh, same, a different company now, but same CEO and labor uh, and leadership. Mm. And um, the UMW advised them to take a contract a few months ago, and they overwhelmingly turned it down. Oh. They just said, this is not a contract that represents our interest. I think they were going to get one point a dollar fifty an hour back toward where they had been before, and so on. So, really, it's interesting that the national media didn't cover this at all. And what they're all saying, the people who are covering are saying, including the World Socialist website, which has covered this, hmm. saying what they really need is just the rank and file to make the, dis the decision about this contract because they clearly did that 
about the most recent offer. They just turned it down by, I don't know, a thousand mm. to 50 or something like that. Mm. So it's going on and going on. They have a, they have an auxiliary, a women's auxiliary with all of the wives and they have a pantry and they're doing all kinds of mutual aid now to support each other. Though some of the wives who had never had jobs before have jobs now, the husbands are having to take second and third jobs in order to keep people alive. But their, um, their motto really is uh, one day longer, meaning they're going to stay there one day mm. longer than the company does, right? One day longer. And I just have been really, I listened to a recording of a rally they had. It's a down south, very religious, lots of gospel mm -hmm. music, you know, that kind of thing going on at mm. the rally. But when a fellow was commenting about it, he said, you know, really the reason the labor union is a possibility for making a better society is that in a labor union, there's a possibility of getting all kinds of people together, conservative, mm -hmm. liberals, right. uh, multi-generational, multi-racial, multi-whatever. And you may have all kinds of differences which don't get forgotten about, but they're somehow overwhelmed by your brotherhood, by the fact that you're all working men or women. And um, I really thought that's, you know, that's what we're talking about. It's hard to get Americans these days, let's just say Americans, to think about solidarity because we're such blasted individualists uh, mm -hmm. and neoliberals. But um, this, this uh, strike is going on with no... Um, no break in sight. Again, it's because of unfair labor practices, because I believe that the uh, company had just completely uh, refused to negotiate with them at all. Um, but in any case, so this is one of those places where we hear very little about it because it's not a fancy or a sexy thing. Uh, a lot of environmentalists aren't worried about coal miners being on strike because they hate the idea of coal, right? But these are still people who need to be able to support their families and Absolutely. who need to be able to support their schools and all of that kind of thing. So I, um, I had a lot of people to thank today. And one of them is Hamilton Nolan for being there and covering this. And for the rest of the uh, podcasters and the local media who have um, made it possible to find out about this if you want to find out about it despite the fact that the national corporate media doesn't cover it yeah. so there we are sort of with what um with what derek was talking about uh, right you don't hear a lot about this kind of thing but it's going on and it has to go on and workers yeah. workers need to be convinced that we have the power right um, no that's so that was great, Linda. And I, and you know, you Holiday touched on. That's right. Holiday. Oh no, we're not supposed no, to. No, well, it, you know, it, it, I, it, there are some parallel. And well, you're in North Carolina, so you, so mm -hmm. you got this figured out. There are, there are some parallel features of that story that fit into local culture mm -hmm. and of, oh, Let's see, Brookwood, is that the name of the little place? Brookwood. Yeah, mm -hmm. Brookwood, thank you. It's it's only like six or seven miles straight east of downtown Tuscaloosa. Mm -hmm. And I know if there was a, a worker action like this, it, 
uh, Madison, Wisconsin or Athens, Georgia, you know, there, it would it would be a very, very big deal. And the community would rally together in favor of the participants. And it and it would be, you know, woke university educated culture versus what, you know, what people are trying to fix. And that's not happening. It's right. It's right there in uh, Cribs and Tide's backyard. And, you know, I, I had the privilege of getting, you know, up close and personal with the, with the labor actions in Bessemer and the, and and, uh, more the, you know, the Colonel Jeff Bezos, you know, uh, you know, delivery center plantation. And, uh, and I'll make you promise now that uh, Texas is in the SEC, if the Longhorns are going to Bryant Danny Stadium this fall, I, I will invent a reason to do that, go there and I will do some, um, uh, you know, deep digging <laughs> and find what's going on. Mm-hmm. I thought mm-hmm. it was interesting just in the little article that I was reading um, that, that the the, it started back when the company went into bankruptcy and then a conglomerate took it and made huge profits between then and now, which kind of looks like profit taking basically. Yeah. Sure. And they had stuff like it was saying here that uh, they went along with stuff like uh, attendance. If you missed four days in a year, you were terminated, you know, mm-hmm. really stuff that they were trying, mm-hmm. they'd use during that post bankruptcy period. Right. Uh, right. And then to just, you know, not negotiate. just refuse basically to negotiate a, a follow up contract. Yeah, the, the workers apparently talk about one, they want their $1.1 billion back. And they figure that's what they have not gotten in salary, benefits, vacations, you know, all of those things over the period of this five year contract. And then they're getting a lot of, like you said, mutual aid support, support from their families and stuff in the communities behind them, it sounds like. Yeah, and think think of that 1.5 billion, what kind of impact that has on a little town like Brookwood. So, oh God, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And they are not the town, the the workers are, I have to say, reality check, the workers are apparently not fully united. There are some workers who have gone back to work and you know the the folks who are on strike just say we don't have anything to say to you if you you know it's just broken down there but well well we need to um, get to the next interview here right and um and this is uh aaron foley well we are very pleased to welcome to our show um aaron foley and aaron is the secretary treasurer of teamsters local two in Montana, and she's the new president of the Montana AFL-CIO. Well, congratulations, Erin, I think, and <laughs> um, and uh, welcome to uh, Voice of the People. Yes, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's. I always say that being elected to some office or another is as much uh, work as it is anything else. Um, so, but thanks for doing that. Um, well, um, so Erin, we've been, uh, this is our Labor Day show, we've been talking with some, uh, uh, actually everyone is part of the labor movement on this show. Um, 
And uh, we just wanted to find out, um, you know, a little bit about what you think. But first, why don't you give us a little more background about who you are and, and um, you know, what you've been up to and, and, uh, and, and the like. Let, let our listeners know um, who Aaron Foley is. Sure. Okay. So um, I started out, I come from a union background, a union family. So it's been in my, my blood and my genes for years and years. Um, and I actually uh, went to Montana Tech and graduated with a bachelor's in communication. And then I went back later and got a, uh, a radiology degree so I could be a radiology tech at um, the hospital. So that's where I worked. That was my first union job, I guess. And we were Teamsters there and um, we were going on strike and we were having an informational picket about 20 days out before the contract strike was going to happen. And um, I was really involved and got all 100 members all jacked up and ready to go. And they were all in the informational picket. And so after that, the um, the head of the Teamsters at the time asked me if I wanted to go to a women's conference. And I'm like, sure, yeah, I want to learn all I can. And then when I did return from that, they offered me the business agent job. So I was a business agent for Local 2 for, um, I started in 2013. And then uh, um, two years ago now, I was um, appointed into the current position that I am to fill the seat. Wow. So, it's, yeah. been, it's been that long huh, since you <laughs> left the hospital. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, just, <laughs> as, as just a note for listeners, um, I w- was representing at the time uh, the uh, some of the other service workers in the hospital, too, when Aaron was um, uh, working there, actually. Um, so, well, so that's uh, that's quite a journey, and and so and now you, you got talked into running for president of the right, yes, yeah. So yeah, so um, my short tenure, I just yeah, things keep happening. So there, there you go. Well, you, yep. you're doing something right, I think. So, um, well, um, you know, we were talking before the recording here a little bit about um, the. Uh, Kind of the the f- fact of the matter is is that it is very difficult to go on strike. I mean, it should be difficult to go on strike in some sense, right? That it's a tough thing, but even to the point of um, almost impossible in many cases, it seems like, or um, or it seems like it's impossible. Um, and you know, I made a statement. You seem to agree with that. Is that you know, if a union doesn't have the capacity to strike, it's basically, you know, we're reduced to being a lobbying organization and which is not, that's not what a union is. Uh, any thoughts about that, Aaron? I mean, wh- why, why do you think it's so tough? I mean, first of all. You know, I think, I think a lot of things that people struggle with walking out is knowing that their paycheck stops. Um, so they have to make that decision. Do I have enough money in the bank? Um, to be able to support our, my family and myself to get us through the strike. And we have no idea how long the strike could go on for. So I think, um, unfortunately, the employer can definitely exploit that um, in the, the employees. But a lot of times we talk about you need, you need at least, you know, two or three months of your paychecks in your bank account so that you guys can make it on the strike. Because we have strike funds, but they're not 
not what the bank, what your, you know, your weekly paycheck is or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I think it kind of unfortunately is turn the tides where if we're not getting paychecks, um, people don't want to go on strike. Mm -hmm. Do you think, um, you know, in the past, I mean, especially if you look at the 30s and 40s, which during that time, the, the current labor movement was really created in the 30s and 40s. And uh, lots of people, and you're in Butte, right? Local two's yes. offices in Butte. And, uh, and I tell people, well, you know, even, even the, the Gibraltar of unionism, which is what Butte is often called in the 1920s had very few unions or union activity. I mean, right. basically, you know, it was occupied by the US military. Um, at the early part of that decade, and nothing really until the 1930s. Um, you know, and some, some, some people think we're in somewhat of a similar situation, right? Where yeah. labor's on its heels, and we're not, we're, you know, we're getting getting our butts kicked. I'll keep that. Yes. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's for sure. Um, and um, we're getting our butts kicked, but yet, you know, uh, Back, back then, were people, do you think people were more desperate or was there a different kind of um, idea about what unions were versus now when it's more difficult to strike? Because that's all they had back then, <clears throat> I think, is just walking out and strike. Right. So I think, I think what we've kind of lost is the brotherhood that where your work family is also your union family and and they have their picnics and their things and they hang out on the weekends and all their kids know each other and that. And I think that that has changed. I think a lot of people, I mean, the work-life balance is something that's always talked about in negotiations and that and making sure employees have time to spend time with their families and stuff. But I think in the mix of that, uh, moving into that kind of generation and also we're working longer hours or um, you know, different schedules and everything else. And I think we've really lost that connection and that brotherhood where, you know, those are the people you call on the weekends if you need help, or they're the ones that you see all the time anyways. Yeah. Yeah. How do you, it, are there things um, being done or could be done, do you think to help increase that or to boost that up? Yeah. So I think, I think what we as labor leaders need to do is start working on internally organizing all of our union members so that they get to know one another and, and know that they're fighting the same fight um, together. So I think it's trying to figure out how to bring that back in um, to the movement and get, get people there. Yeah, there's, um, uh, well, I, I would say that, you know, even internally organizing over a contract, for instance, right, that yes. you, that you you did very well at St. James Hospital um, around that that um, that if you take up with a kind you know with sort of the relational kind of organizing right which um, it, it there's a lot of there's several different unions that use kind of kind of similar methods shall we say uh, on the organizing and I, and I I'm ignorant about the Teamsters so I, I can't answer that but um, but that the um, <clears throat> you know, a lot of them reflect about how the CIO was organizing back in the 1930s and 40s. And that through the organizing itself, that people began to, to build that solidarity, right? Mm -hmm. That through the struggle of the campaign, that people began to see, uh, because, because of how 
people were organized one by one. It wasn't, it wasn't an email blast, right? right? It was everyone gets talked to, not necessarily by one person, but you know, that in, in, uh, and it was, it's done granularly, right? I it's, guess that's a word. Right. Yeah. Um, one by one and, um, maybe a lot at the same time, but that's, it's all one-on-one, um, that kind of thing, I think w- helps build that sense of like, Hey, this person's got my back. I'm going to have theirs. Right. Yeah. We lost that face-to-face contact. Um, especially with cell phones and emails and, you know, uh, social media and everything. So I think that's kind of the trick we're trying to figure out is how do we engage and connect them. And you also have these contracts that have been around for, you know, since the eighties and seventies and that, and they're, they're really well written. They're really good. So you go in to negotiate, you know, wages and benefits. You don't have to touch anything else in the contract. And then you never hear from the members that have a really solid contract because it it's good and the employer abides by it. So I think that kind of helped us get lackadaisical because we just show up and say, what do you guys want? Okay, we'll go in. And, you know, a lot of times you can get it depending on what the employer is. But I think in the off time is where we miss internally organizing and get, keeping people engaged and keeping their attention. And I think the contract terms have lasted longer too. Yes. And, and yeah, five, you were mentioning a five-year contract with UPS yeah. that is a national agreement. Um, that's unusually long. I mean, for people that aren't in, in unions that um, typically three year or less is usually the length of a, of a contract. You know, it just, are you familiar with uh, bargaining for the common good? It's a labor organization. I'm that, not. Um, it's, it, it, it came out of the really, I think it probably started with the Los Angeles teachers, but also the Chicago teachers. And there's others involved too, where, um, because they're public service uh, workers, right? That um, they, um, you know, they added a twist to their collective bargaining and, and to their contracts where they started um, uh, bargaining for like green, in, I know in Los Angeles, um, where they had, a, they had a virtually a 100% walkout strike um, that uh, back a few years ago. 40,000 40, teachers, can you imagine that? Um, right. And um, and they were highly organized. They used these methods, right? These CIO organizing methods. And um, one of the things that they walked out on strike over was uh, the, in, in the inclusion of green spaces uh, on school grounds as substitutes for parks for kids, right? Now that's a really non-traditional yeah. um, kind of thing. The the Chicago teachers were bargaining for uh, for uh, the school district not to allow ICE, the immigration, uh, you know, and customs yeah. enforcement to come into the schools, right? Um, yeah. And they also bargained for um, uh, to have uh, every school have at least a part-time nurse because there were so many health issues in a lot of their schools that they, you know, that, that was the only place where these kids could, you know, so that kind of bargaining really expands the idea of what bargaining might be. Yeah, definitely. I think, yeah, the traditional benefits are, are morphing into things that collectively take care of, you know, everyone in the group where you try to 
I mean, at St. James, even we have, you know, all the different specialties. So we do sometimes go in and we, we carve out these little specialties and say, Hey, we need to get this done in this area, but it doesn't affect this area. So I think we're doing a lot more thinking outside the box and coming up with other things that could be solutions to problems. Right. And it would, it connects the, um, and, and, and those are good because it can connect, you know, uh, a lot. I mean, most workers don't belong to a union and most workers, you know, a lot of workers feel like, well, that's, you know, great for them, but you know, they're not, they're not helping me out. Um, I, one of the things I think that how that could change is, is doing that bargaining for the common good. It also kind of shows too, that, that, you know, we're, we're not an isolated sort of, you know, like St. James Hospital is not an isolated unit someplace that's divorced from the rest of the Butte community. Right. Um, I mean, and, and that's, uh, you know, uh, and, and I'm just throwing that out as an example, but, you know, not only bargain for your own goods, right. That's, I mean, yeah. that's really important. You got to do that and, and, and it should be increased, but you know, bargaining outside of the box, I think is, is a huge, uh, really largely unexplored uh, vein for, I think, a lot of unions. Right. Yeah. And the, I think uh, um, with the COVID pandemic happening too, in our nursing homes and that we've seen where we, you know, PPEs and going back and going forth. So I think it was kind of an interesting time as, um, as the things were happening, we were doing not necessarily bargaining, but we had to meet and, and discuss topics and, you know, enforce things or get new things in that wouldn't violate the contract, but also everyone saw a need for it. So we needed to make sure that it happened or that the safety conditions were, were safe for all of the, the members, but that also affected all the other non-organized people in the building mm-hmm. um, to make yeah. sure that they had, had the stuff they needed. Yeah. Um, we, we, you know, I also mentioned before we, we started uh, talking here that um, it's been long my contention that the, the that the national AFL-CIO needs to, as as a as a top priority, um, in fact, um, needs to figure out how to again widen widen the importance of organized labor in in society. And, um, and in this way, uh, uh, one very important way is try to figure out how to build the capacity to, to um, prepare for and actually carry out some kind of a general strike. And it's a, it, it is a tool that labor in this country do not have, as opposed to most other countries in the world, labor does have that. And that's, uh, I think that's a, a, a big gap. That also, inc- you know, when, when you organize for a general strike, it's, it's also non-organized people who are right. doing it as well. Gotcha. And, and we saw that, we saw that last year with, uh, you know, the George Floyd um, protests, right? Mm-hmm. Where um, even like uh, black owned stores just shut down, right? Went on strike on that one day. Yeah. Um, and lots of others did too. None of them organized, you know, but, you know, there's action going on. Yeah, there. It happened, yeah. there is some sort of strike action. What, what do you, I mean, what do you make of that? What, what do you think? You know, I think, I think it actually shows a really 
good message. Um, cause even those, I mean, I know that there was the question whether or not they were peaceful strikes and everything else, but I do think that when everyone can come together for a common thing, not, not something tragic like that, but even just to show up and, you know, support each other and come together. I think um, the right to work when we were up at the Capitol this um, January, that was, it was really crazy to see all the people lining the halls um, with our signs and everything else, but it was just this silent kind of grouping together for the right to work. But there were a lot of other people just besides labor people and organized um, people up there just because they know how important it was. Um, but it was, you know, we all came together, we just emerged and then we just went away when we needed to. So it was, it, but it was very, it was very cool to see. Yeah. And that was, that was one of the few successes of the Montana legislature this year. Yes. Um, so that, and that was well, well organized. I absolutely. Um, so uh, any any other thoughts you might have, like um, where where the you know in your positions of great power and influence, <laughs> um, mostly just great work probably. Um, but um, uh, I mean, what what are your thoughts moving ahead here? Where what would you like to see the labor movement in general go? Not just not just your union, the Teamsters. I mean, although you could talk about that too, but. But, but the labor movement in general, where do, you, where do you think it needs to go? I think, I think the time is very ripe that we could definitely do a lot more organizing and, and beef up the unions. I mean, you know, get those employees that are um, not, not well taken care of by their employers. Um, so I think, I think there's a lot of organizing that could be done, but it's trying to figure out, like you said, the mold of what, how do we organize now? Um, I think the digital worlds came a long way. We do our um, general meetings on Zoom and that sort of stuff to try to reach people on the other side of Montana. So I think that's been an avenue that um, the AFL has used because we have a weekly meeting with them. We have weekly meetings with the Teamsters. So it's it's something that we never had before. It's direct communication to all of, um, you know, labor to um figure out goals and, and come up with new ways of organizing. So I think it's, it's teaching all of us how to, how to come together. And then we just got to go out and figure out how to get everyone else to come into it. I wish I had the answer, <laughs> but I would like to see where, you know, we, we do bring back that brotherhood and that where we all hang out or, um, we had a cornhole tournament in Bozeman and we had a great turnout, but there was a lot of different people that had never met before. And we're like, here's your teamster brothers and sisters. And you know, this is, this is what it was like in back in the day. So we're trying to figure out how we can do that now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, we're, we're out of time, unfortunately, Aaron, but thank you very much. It's, uh, this has been Aaron Foley, who's secretary treasurer of Teamsters Local 2 based in Butte, Montana and the new president of the Montana AFL-CIO. Thanks a lot for appearing. We'll, we'll try to call you again sometime. Okay, great. Thanks, Mark. And we're back with the <coughs> fearsome foursome. Um, <laughs> and, the four uh, horsemen of the apocalypse. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I wasn't going to go there, Jim, but... Uh, <laughs> I wanted a classic answer. Yes, that, that would be more. Throw it into Linda's court. Right, yeah. Linda, right, that's right. Um, 
So uh, any thoughts about what, uh, um, what Aaron had to say? Congratulations to her being, yeah. a, <laughs> being a teamster is quite a job. They're, they're from my experience, very professional, well-staffed, communicate well, and um, you stay busy if you're on a teamster payroll. Well, I, yeah, I mean, that's like, in, yeah, most any union payroll, if you're doing your job, oh. right. Um, yeah. That's it. Yeah. What I, I think she's, you know, um, I, th I was sort of taken by, she's, you know, thinking about how things, you know, used to, how do we re revive in a new way, how unions really functioned uh, in the past. And um, she, as well as Derek, right, they highlighted organizing, internal organizing, um, which is a thing, you know, it's not just getting the unorganized workers, although that's important too, but um, needing to find out how you build that cohesiveness in, a, in an organization, that's tough. Yeah. Well, um, that matter of whole world, whole worker organizing is something, of course, that Jane McAlevey talks about a lot, um, that you don't organize workers just as workers, but as people. And um, I think community. she basically says, if we get communities, right, people who belong in communities, and if we cannot get other people, particularly since we have fewer unionized workers now, if we cannot get the whole community to come out on their behalf, because they understand that the negotiations are more about more than just pay and benefits and hours at the job or whatever, um, it's really hard to see how we'll succeed. So I think that's an exciting, and I don't know that it, whether it's uh, looking backward, getting back to the way things ought to be, or whether it's looking forward in the way things are now that we've got only, what, 7% of mm -hmm. private sector private workers sector. Uh, are organized now. So yeah. um, if there aren't so many of us that they're used to, as there used to be, then we better have people in the communities who are mm -hmm. realizing that unions work for all of us, not just for it was neat to see her, her say, um, like I, I can't remember if we talked yet about um, the, the defeat of the right to work bill, mm -hmm. but just her, her realization of the number of people who weren't in the unions who were there, who were community members, mm -hmm. who were um, supporting the work against the right to work bill. Yeah. I, I, mm. That's important for them, for people to see, you know, have an opportunity to, contribute. I mean, you can, maybe it's not as visible when like, nurses go up on strike up in Kalispell and, and um, you know, you have a chance to support them, come up and visit or whatever, but not that many people hear about it, um, but you, you can help people out when they're, you know, on the picket line. Mm -hmm. And the whole thing of trying to be able to survive a strike. I know when I was on strike in 78 in community here, I had nothing to lose. I just finished school. Um, but there are people there who had mortgages to pay and families to raise. And now I look back and I think, oh, how did they do it? Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, you need a lot of support when you're out there. I'm sure. Yeah, it's critically important. And breaking down those barriers between organized labor and the community mm -hmm. is just a good idea all the way around, whether it's, you know, bargaining for the common good, whether it's you know, going out and showing solidarity or having, 
events, you know, um, it, all of that is, is just critically important uh, moving forward. Mm -hmm. um, well, I wanted, before we go to the next um, interview, um, I wanted to give uh, listeners a little bit of news about a new strike that's happened. Um, and this is at all of the U.S. production facilities of Nabisco. Mm -hmm. And uh, <clears throat> they're the ones who make Oreo cookies, Chips Ahoy, Ritz, premium salt, you know, premium saltine crackers, uh, chicken in a biscuit, I know is made in, in the Portland, Oregon plant. Um, so the workers, every, all the workers, um, apparently, um, in all of the production that's left in the United States, much of it got moved to Mexico after the takeover by the uh, company, by a, a company now known as Mondelez. And they're just a big, you know, uh, big corporate outfit that, that is looking to harvest profits, right, basically. Um, and uh, this is from the Common Dreams article on August uh, 20th, I believe. Yep, August 20th. With U.S. snack consumption rising during the pandemic, Mondelez's 2020 revenue increased to $26.6 billion, according to the Chicago Business Journal, with profits of $3.6 billion and a 6% annual increase in share price. Dirk Vandeput, I think is how you say his name, uh, Mondelez's new CEO could earn more than $17 million in compensation plus a $38 million one-time windfall this year. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, uh, mm -hmm. Nabisco, Nabisco workers have been forced to work 12 to 16 hour shifts, six to seven days a week during the pandemic, while the company seeks to eliminate overtime pay by altering employee schedules so that weekend shifts become part of the 40-hour work week. Workers are also rejecting a Mondelez proposal to create different employee health plans under which new hires would pay more, including deductibles, which do not exist under the current system. And, and there's more, right? That's the, those are kind of the some of the issues. There's a lot of issues. But um, if in talking about solidarity and breaking down community, uh, organized labor barriers, if you uh, feel so moved um, that you can participate in a boycott of these Nabisco products until the strike is resolved. So I wanted to do, wanted to say that because actually our next interviewee, Don McIntosh, makes reference to the Nabisco strike. So, and I think okay. you can buy things that seem like Oreos from uh, the Paul Newman company too. <laughs> yes, that seem like Oreos. I like that. <laughs> they're not quite. Yeah, they're not quite, but you know, uh, yeah, there's alternatives, right? right. Um, so our next, our last interviewee is Don McIntosh. You're listening to Voice of the People, radio by and for the 99%. And you are listening to it in the Missoula Valley on KFGM 105.5 FM, Missoula Community Radio. Or you are hearing it streaming on Saturdays from noon to two on 1055kfgm.org. And uh, you may be listening to it on podcast, now available on anchor.fm and 
on Spotify and other uh, podcast apps that you might have. Um, And you can search for it under Voice of the People Radio by and for the 99%. We're so pleased uh, for the show to have uh, Don McIntosh, who's a reporter uh, with Northwest Labor Press newspaper out of Portland, Oregon, serving Oregon and Southwest Washington union members. Uh, welcome to Voice of the People, Don. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. Um, so uh, we've been asking others, ask you too, um, and you can answer this however you like. Um, I mean, what is the state of, you know, the American workers, U.S. workers, right now, this Labor Day and, uh, and or labor unions, if you wanna do that. And um, maybe more importantly, where would you like, where do you think that the labor movement should go from here? Which, what should we be you know, trying to promote and, and work at right now? Yeah, uh, well, what, what, you know, great questions and one I think a lot of people are thinking about right now. Um, you know, uh, I think, you know, the American labor movement, you know, in terms of like formal organized unions is in, in many ways at the lowest point that we've seen since the 1920s. It represents a smaller share of the workforce. Um, you know, it doesn't, it's, it's having a great difficulty in many cases getting the goods that it used to get, getting, you know, the victories that it used to get. Um, and there's a whole lot of reasons for that. Um, I, ironically, at the same time, in some ways, I think that the, the political climate is more favorable now towards labor in some ways than it has been certainly since any time I started uh, working as a full-time union reporter 22 years ago. Um, the Joe, Joe Biden administration is uh, unabashedly vocally pro-union, uh, you know, again and again on specific instances, um, you know, he's really um, uh, uh, come out very strongly uh, for pro-union policy. Just to give you one example, um, you know, on the day of inauguration, uh, within uh, hours, an email went out to the um, general counsel of the National Labor Relations Board. That's the top lawyer that's supposed to protect workers' rights. But unfortunately, the Trump appointee who was occupying that job was uh, an anti-union lawyer. (laughs) So uh, within hours of Joe Biden uh, taking the oath of office, an email goes out to him saying, basically, you need to resign by the end of the day or you'll be fired. Now, this has never been done before. Normally, those folks stay in office. Their term is supposed to end in October. It's not even clear that he had legal authority to do that. But that's what he did. The guy said, no, I'm not going to resign. And the next day he was fired. <laughs> and then at that point, uh, the number two official, also a Trump appointee, uh, became acting uh, general counsel, got the same email the same day. You know, OK, you need to resign by the end of the day or you'll be fired. She also refused to resign. She also was fired. And at that point, you know, the agency was placed in the hands of someone, a career NRB person who you know, is seemingly serious about enforcing the law, protecting workers' rights to unionize. That's just one little example, but I think it shows such a such a difference, so much different, so much more aggressively pro-union uh, than Obama ever was, certainly than Clinton ever was. Um, and so uh, between that, I think, and, and Congress, um, Mark, if you'd asked me a few years ago, will Congress pass the PRO Act? This is a major, major, uh, profound rewrite of America's basic labor law. I would have said, ah, ha, ha, that's, that's crazy. That's in fact what uh, the House already has done. And there's, there's efforts to try and get it somehow through the Senate. I don't know if they'll succeed. I'm really astonished. 
I think what one of the reasons that we're seeing that actually is finally there's been um, sort of a political trajectory that the Democratic Party went away from labor for a long time, starting in the 1960s and 70s, thought, well, maybe labor was too powerful, you know, maybe we don't need labor. But now the truth is that the Democratic Party in many ways has gone through the same um, uh, course of defeat, losing so many state houses, losing so much um, and, and, and maybe belatedly has come to realize that they need labor and labor needs them. They need labor because uh, basically, you know, for better or worse, and probably for worse, you know, organized labor has been both the workhorse and the cash cow of the Democratic Party. There's a whole story about that, too. I want to be really clear. Unions do not want to be partisan. Unfortunately, one party has increasingly turned against unions, and so unions have felt like they've got no, no place else to turn. But I think finally we are starting to see some uh, awareness among uh, leading Democrats that actually they do need to help labor. Labor is on its on his back and it needs the help right now. And so that's, I think, what's to account for the, the favorable labor uh, uh, political climate. Yeah, so the, the third thing, it's, it's um, you know, an idea that I call uh, latency, basically how much support is there you know, among the public and general working people to unionize, uh, to take risks that that would take and unionize. And um, every year, the Gallup polling organization uh, conducts uh, the same poll, and they basically ask, you know, different groups of people, like, you know, what, how much, you know, do you support unions? Um, and in the last year, that level of support has, has been the highest it's been in like 30 years. And what's interesting about it is that uh, the support is highest among the youngest people. And that's ironic because the youngest workers are actually the least likely to be in a union, but the Gallup polling organization is showing that they're the most likely to want to join a union. Um, and it's also the case that the, the higher the education level of the worker uh, these days, they, wanna, they want into the union. So I think these are potentially positive trends because if the younger generation is much more pro-union and they seem to be, um, then that can only be a good thing, I think, going forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I, I do think that uh, maybe part of that in with the young people um, that I know and, and interact with, um, it seems to me that they feel they've been uh, dealt a bad hand. Um, and I think uh, my gener, I'll just speak for my generation. Um, I think uh, we were just at the, uh, I was just at the tail end of the boomer uh, age. And, um, it, you know, it was just, you know, the promise was all there and, and basically kind of set sail. And then, you know, then trouble happened right away in, in my own life, too. Um, so and it kind of sent me in a different direction that I probably would have gone um, if, if I would have had, you know, a job I wasn't exploited at. Um, so uh, I, I think, and maybe I'm just, you know, extrapolating from my own personal experience, but, um, but there is, I, I definitely know that there's a lot more support, maybe, and, but maybe the least amount of knowledge of, of unions, even direct knowledge, for sure. Uh, and, and, and even, I, how, how, I mean, do you notice that too, that, that, you know, there's less of an idea of what unions actually do, but more support for them and why, what's, is this something, uh, I mean, what do you, what do you attribute that to maybe? 
Well, it's true that just the, there's a lack of familiarity. I mean, fr- frankly, most people, even who are in unions, don't really understand uh, it very well. I mean, they they can be, you know, as I've found uh, reporting on it uh, closely for 22 years, you know, they can be very uh, arcane, um, sort of rule bound. You know, I'm still learning about the way they operate, you know, all, all this time uh, later. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that's necessarily a, a bad thing that people are unfamiliar. If anything, um, it could be um, a positive if they're creative and want to, you know, recreate unions or, or, or develop unions on, on along new models. I think one of the problems that we've had is that there's a tendency, there's kind of an inertia, there's a tendency to continue the old ways, um, even when those aren't working, aren't winning anymore. Um, and I think more than anything, actually, the union movement uh, or unions to win, they're going to have to get back to really the basics. Uh, and that's more along the lines of a social movement. Um, It still needs to be in the workplace, obviously, because that's where the fight's gonna be, but it has to be uh, the old ways, which are something called organizing. Um, And if if you've got a few minutes, I can explain what I mean about that. I mean, organizing, I mean, a lot of people aren't that familiar with it. It's not about, you know, having an orderly toolbox or, you know, uh, a clean uh, room. Organizing in this context means it's the ability of working people uh, to act together uh, for their own interests. Um, So it's not just, you know, signing a card and, you know, paying dues or, uh, you know, belonging to a union, you know, formally. It actually, it means that you and your coworkers are, are capable of doing something uh, collectively. Um, and, and that's actually where the power starts to come from. I, I learned, I saw this a few years ago, my, my daughter um, was starting out uh, playing basketball and uh, early on they were defeated and defeated, de- defeat after defeat. And what I saw was five players who were playing individually uh, on the squad. And as time went on, they started to coordinate and develop plays. And basically what I saw is they were getting organized. And guess what happened? After they got organized, they started to win. And I think it's the same uh, in the in the union case. You know, if if the whole idea of collective bargaining um, is uh, rests at the end of the day on what you can do, if you go to the employer and say, "I represent these workers. I would like a five cents raise," and the employer says, "Well, no," and what are you going to do about it? And if the answer is no, then what are you doing there? Mm-hmm. You can't do anything if you to get them make them give you that five cent raise then, you know, the whole idea, the whole edifice of collective bargaining breaks down. So, um, so, so again, organizing is basically the ability to act together uh, in, you know, you're organized, you're not just an individual. Um, And I think uh, for too many union members, there's not a consciousness of that. That's actually how you win the victories. Um, You know, they think, well, I pay union dues, someone will negotiate for me and they'll win things for me. But the problem is that the power that you need to win anything comes from that ability to do things together. And of course, the, the biggest, most important thing that we, we may have some memory of doing something together is called the strike. You know, you, you uh, at, at first you withhold your labor um, and then you do everything possible to, to expand that fight and to make it as painful as possible for um, your adversary in this negotiation so that they're going to make some kind of concessions or back off the concessions they're asking you to make. That's right. In fact, isn't that the heart of a union is the ability to strike? I mean, the source of workers' power, I mean, there's been a lot of, um, and maybe not the source, but one major piece of independent uh, power for workers is the ability to withhold your labor. Um, Because, you know, political, I mean, you know, Biden's been doing pretty good, but political leaders are fickle and don't necessarily aren't necessarily in the trenches. 
Well, I'm convinced that the decline in labor's power to strike and strike effectively is the key ingredient that is uh, why uh, we've been on a, a course of decline for a long time. But striking isn't the only thing uh, or, or that unions do to make things better. Uh, you know, it's worth pointing out that the, the building and construction trades tend to have a somewhat different model. They do occasionally use strikes, but they also have other methods. For example, they try to corner the market in skilled labor. So for example, you know, if you can get everybody bricklayer in your town to say, I won't work for less than this $20 union rate or 30 or 40 or actually, you know, very, low, very high rates. Then you, you then if, if anybody wants to employ a, a skilled bricklayer, they need to come to you. And so that's another way of, of acting together, you know, in an organized fashion. It doesn't involve a strike necessarily, but it does. It, it's a way that you come together with your fellow workers and, and, you know, make a better life for yourself, a life of dignity. That's right. Um, union density is is another way of maybe uh, talking about that uh, in the sense that um, housekeepers in Las Vegas, uh, hotel housekeepers, um, eighty five percent of them, I think, are organized into Unite Here, the union. Um, but the other fifteen percent, or e even if it was less percent than that, if it was forty percent, say. Um, that's a big enough number that it affects even the non-union housekeepers. And so union density changes the you know, material conditions for that, that work. Very much so. And in fact, a lot of what you'll see is that even though the unions may not represent the entire workforce in a given industry, they're setting the standard. And part of that is because the employers, for whatever reason, ideologically or otherwise, they do not like unions. And so they're going to try to match the union rate with the non-union employees to give them to, you know, no incentive to go union. Oh, why would you go union? I'm already paying you the union rate. And that's, I think, unfortunate, but it does happen. But it shows in, in, in many ways how the union, uh, even when they don't represent a, a worker, are still contributing contributing to improving that worker's well-being. Mm -hmm. one, of the, uh, one of the things I think that's really interesting now is United Auto Workers, um, which has been a, a very troubled union the last few years, um, is having a referendum now. And I think the final vote is end of September or October on um, moving away from uh, having delegates at a convention choose the leadership to having more of a direct democracy where, uh, where each union member gets to vote uh, for whatever leader, you know, that they want, which, um, you know, some are saying that this is a big step forward for um, changing the culture within unions. Uh, what, what do you make of that? Uh, well, I think there's probably arguments on both sides. I mean, at some level, it does seem like a democratic advance, right? You could point out that the Teamsters have had a similar scenario for many years. I don't think everyone agrees that, you know, that they're altogether the most democratic union at the top level. It's a really tricky thing. I mean, I think you have to go back to part of the problem is just the low level of uh, involvement by the rank and file, generally speaking. I mean, in theory, if you had a very active rank and file uh, electing their local leaders, giving them instructions for what they want to take to the national convention, setting the agenda, determining the course of the union, there wouldn't be a problem with the current arrangement. Um, I mean, the problem is that you have a very small number of people that go to union meetings that pay attention to these things. 
Um, and, it, you know, so it, it creates, I think, sometimes it sets up the opportunity for abuses to occur. I mean, I've, I've um, you know, known many, many union people over the years. And I think there's a, sometimes a perception that, you know, unions are corrupt, uh, you know, or, or you know, uh, nefarious in some way. Uh, in my experience, that's not uh, generally the case any more than other institutions. I mean, you're going to find embezzlement in churches and in, you know, public sector uh, government employers and in business, certainly. And there's going to be some of that in unions, too. I think the bigger problem is just that uh, you know it, when you once you, you get to office you're going to have sometimes um, you know you're going to be at a remove from the rank and file and so I think the most the most healthy unions are those where the rank and file members are paying close attention to what happens are going to meetings you know are holding their leaders uh, accountable yeah yeah I've, I've spoken to a lot of uh, labor leaders here in Montana and um, the, a few on that have been interviewed for this show and um there's this both a frustration about non-involvement by members and the other part of it is sort of maybe it's a corollary to that is the lack of solidarity right a feeling that you know uh, this person's fight's also my fight because this person if if it's my fight this person will come to my aid Uh, I mean could you speak to that a little bit Absolutely. I mean, I actually want to say, you know, I think solidarity is the most important word in the union vocabulary, Um, but it's not unique to unions, actually. Uh, Solidarity is actually a a very important human instinct, and you see it in all kinds of situations. So, for example, um, uh, you know, a hurricane hits your town. All of a sudden you think, oh, you know, some of these conservatives, they have a very low opinion of human nature. They think, oh, everyone's selfish. They're only going to look after themselves. But in fact, in situation after situation, when you have a disaster where where there's shared sacrifice, people take extraordinary risks to help each other. I've seen people like, you know, linking arms to pull someone out of a flood. You know, you see all, all kinds of stuff like that. That's basically uh, the analogy. That's basically what a union struggle does. It, it once you're in a situation where it's a high risk struggle, you and your coworkers develop solidarity in action. It didn't come because you had some nice ideology or you heard some speech. It came because you you realized that your interests were bound together with those of your coworkers, and you were going to throw in and go down. You know, you were all in in this together, and that's where you see this extraordinary development of leadership. Uh, when when you're in a conflict situation like that, you see real solidarity and you reach out to people. And it, I, I think it's a beautiful thing. I think we're seeing that actually to some extent right now in the Nabisco, the national, nationwide Nabisco strike. Mm-hmm. You're seeing um, other, other unions at Nabisco besides the Baker's Union are all honoring a picket line. You're seeing unions that are supposed to deliver goods, whether it's the railroad union or the Teamsters Union, they're saying, we're not going to cross that picket line. We're not going to let this company make these products, these Oreos and whatnot, while those folks are on strike. And traditionally, that's how unions won. It was overwhelmingly through solidarity. If you went on strike in your little shop, uh, all of a sudden, everybody else that worked for that employer would go on strike. All of a sudden, the people who handled the goods of that employer would refuse to handle them, or maybe the shopkeepers who sold it which would refuse to uh, to sell those goods. Um, and and there were huge amounts of sort of the, that sort of like the, like a conflagration would break out when these struggles would occur. A lot of that was actually made illegal by federal law in 1947. They tried to make those kinds of solidarity actions illegal uh, very painfully, and and I think succeeded to some extent. But we're going to have to reinvent solidarity if we want to start learning again. Yeah, yeah. And you're in. You made reference to the Taft Hartley Act, which um, the current Pro Act, which is in uh, the Senate right now, and maybe maybe has a chance, maybe it doesn't. Um, as you mentioned at the top of the show, that the PRO Act really undoes a, a, a 
profoundly a lot of what the Taft-Hartley Act had passed. And I think that when it passed at that time, um, labor was very strong and labor was pushing toward you know, basic changes to, to how the economy was run and maybe even how the democracy is run. And I think that a lot of people in uh, uh, the wealthy and corporate heads were uh, absolutely uh, scared to death and wanted to tamp that down right away. Um, and, and I think you're right. I think it largely succeeded. Um, but I think it also means that, um, you know, if the PRO Act is passed, uh, which I dearly hope it is, um, unions got some homework to do as well, right, to, in order to be able to take advantage of those opportunities of new solidarity and, and whatnot. Um, is there, do you see signs of, of unions really starting to, to look at these different forms of solidarity and, and, and maybe, maybe old actions that are kind of dressed up in, in new ways? I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I, it's, a, it's a really tough question. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of historical examples where, uh, you know, it seemed like every, everything was defeat uh, and, and the labor movement was done for, and then it came back. And this is how it tends to happen. In the 1920s, you know, the American business class thought, oh, we've got these guys beat, you know, this is the end for them. And then all of a sudden you have the 1930s and the biggest upsurge in unionization and union movement um, in U.S. history. Um, I'm sure that, you know, there are various nobles who were having a, a, a gay old time in, in 1780, uh, you know, 88 in France who had no idea what was coming for them, that that society was about to be convulsed in a way that, you know, really uh, ended that old inegalitarian order. So I, I can't make predictions necessarily um, other than to say that, um, you know, certainly right now uh, the law really does hamstring uh, union organizing. You know, you, they say you have the right to strike, but also that your employer has the right to permanently replace you. Well, what does that mean? And what does that even mean then you have the right to strike? Uh, you know, they say you have the right to unionize, uh, but your employer uh, fires you and it's illegal and they get away with it. I, I myself was fired. I was um, involved in a union campaign uh, with the Teamsters in Seattle many years ago. Uh, and the company realized what I was up to, fired me illegally. I got a back pay settlement later on, but they accomplished their mission. They, it was the, pay, the price they paid to keep the union out and they, and they won. And it was very painful. So I think one of the things that PRO Act does is it, you know, it actually puts real teeth into those penalties to really deter companies. It does an awful lot of things, actually. It's quite an amazing yeah. uh, rewrite. Re 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 but I think if it passes, I think you're right. It's not, it's not like that unions can just sort of sit around and, and wait for the new members to come in. But that said, you know, a lot of what I do as a labor reporter is I report on these, these union campaigns and some of them win and it's exciting, but you know, um, a lot of them don't. And when they don't, a lot of times it's because of the employer puts their thumb on the scale and fights it tooth and nail. Um, and it's just, these stories are heartrending. And when they do win, frankly, a lot of times they never get that first contract because, you know, for a variety of reasons. The PRO Act actually says if they can't agree, then they're going to appoint a reasonable neutral outsider and arbitrator to decide what that first contract is. Yeah. I mean, you have, you have to go forward in some way. You can't just say, oh, the status quo was just peachy keen, you know, right, <laughs> they right. unionized for nothing. So I think that in so many ways, the PRO Act really would create the conditions for a resurgence of labor, but it, you know, it itself is not enough. We're also looking at um, labor isn't the only institution of this kind to decline, by the way. And it's not just in the United States this is happening. It's around the world. I don't really know uh, why. I'm not sure anybody does. But if you look back um, to all, all sorts of community institutions dating back really to the 1960s, 
um, but particularly the 70s, really started to decline. You know, used to have, um, most everybody was a member of a church and they would go every Sunday. They, you know, people were joiners. They, they joined fraternal organizations, the Moose, the Moose Lodge, the Elks and so forth. You know, Americans were famous for this. Uh, and, and that's, you know, by, by, you know, by and by has declined. Um, now people are, you know, see themselves maybe more as individuals and they don't tend to join organizations. That's deeply problematic, uh, certainly um, actually for democracy, really, but it's also problematic for the union movements. The union movement is just one of those institutions that had that decline where, you know, I met my grandfather used to go to union meetings, you know, uh, there, you know, back in the day, that's what you did. You went to your union meeting and you, you fraternized with your union coworkers and so forth. You know, now I'm not sure maybe you go home and watch Netflix or something, but we're going to have to come back to that. We're going to have to reinvent those things. If we want, like I say, if we want to win again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and that's a tall order. Um, amidst uh, all these other kinds of changes to, to society, as you're saying, that um, uh, I think there's probably a lot more uh, diversions um, where it used to be. I know, I know people who, uh, you know, they, they would send their kids to union summer camp and they would uh, have, you know, once a month potlucks and they would have, and then there's the meetings and then there were other, you know, like gambling events or something. Right. I mean, it was, a, it, it was a whole, uh, uh, culture, right. I mean, basically it was where, where you got your entertainment and your, um, friendships and maybe met your spouse and, that kind of thing, you know, um, but in, 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 same with churches. I mean, churches are definitely on, you know, uh, at least mainline churches on the decline. Um, but we are, we are being more and more atomized and less uh, community oriented, but. But well, I don't think that there's not, there's nothing that says it always has to be the case. I mean, there's right. one thing is sure is that there's going to be change. You know, what direction is the question? Yeah. You know, right now, the trend lines in many respects are very worrisome. But I also see this this potential there. I really do. Uh, if you'd asked me actually 10 years ago, uh, people or 10, 10 or more years ago, uh, people used to say, Don, you're such a pessimist, Don, you know, you, you, you know, because I, I was I'm a critic and I always see the, the, the difficult negative things. I don't feel that way anymore. I actually, as terrible as things are, and they are pretty terrible in some ways, I actually feel optimistic. I think there really is something out there. There's something in the air right now. There's that, that latency that I talked about, that readiness. Uh, young people, they don't know the history. They don't know that they can't win. And they're going out there and they're fighting and sometimes they do win. That's right. That's right. Well, we're going to leave it at that. That's Those are great words to end by, Don. And um, thank you very much for joining us. It's Don McIntosh, who's a reporter with Northwest Labor Press uh, in Portland, Oregon. Um, always uh, glad to talk with you, Don. It's been a pleasure. All right, thank you. And we're back for our last little bit for closing for this show. Um, and uh, I, <clears throat> I thought he, uh, he spoke very knowledgeably from all his years as a labor reporter. I, and I think um, uh, had some reflections and some observations that were very much uh, very similar to what both uh, Derek and Aaron had to say. Linda, you had something you wanted to comment on. Oh, just that, and this will be very brief, just that uh, Don was talking about reinventing things that used to be the way in we did things in America. And um, that always bothers me a little bit because I keep thinking who, who will reinvent them. I think what we need to do is invent, invent, 
solidarity. And I'm not sure we've had that before. I don't want to go back and say, when did we ever do it? But, but um, I do feel that we are in some ways in good hands with the next generation, partly ironically, because they've been so badly treated by uh, the system here um, mm-hmm. that um, I think they're, they're not so dedicated to Mm-hmm. neoliberal capitalism as their folks were. Yeah. yeah. As the survey showed, you mean you're talking about that survey? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's, um, we got to end it at that note, um, which is a, a positive and uplifting note, I would, I would agree. Um, and this has been a great show. Um, thank you um, all, uh, Linda, Jim, and Sue, um, especially. You guys are great. Thanks also to Derek Hidd, Aaron Foley, and Don McIntosh. And thanks to you, our dear listeners, for tuning into the show. So please join us every week on Voice of the People, radio by and for the 99%. shall run. There can be no power greater anywhere beneath the sun. Yet what force on earth is weaker than the feeble strength of one? But the union makes us strong. Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. For the union It is we who plowed the prairies, built the cities where they trade, dug the mines and built the workshops, endless miles of railroad laid. Now we stand outcast and starving mid the wonders we have made, but the union makes us strong. Solidarity forever, solidarity forever, solidarity taken untold millions that they never toil to earn but without our brain and muscle not a single wheel can turn we can break their haughty power gain our freedom when we learn that the union makes us strong solidarity forever solidarity forever solidarity forever In our hands is placed a power greater than their hoarded gold, greater than the might of atoms magnified a thousandfold. We can bring to birth a new world from the ashes of the old, for the union makes us strong. Solidarity forever.